Oh, kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. The Stratus is a hassle-free, reliable, compact pod kit. In those pods, there's a little bit of nicotine to help stave off the cravings of cigarettes. And for the cost of one packet of cigarettes, you could, as sort of an average user, if you're an average user of cigarettes, uh, replace cigarettes for a whole month. That would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Find out more about Stratus at vaporium.com. NZ. Uh, Dr. Maktes Azamande has been on our podcast before. Uh, Dr. Azamande wrote a wrote a blog piece, wrote an article, maybe in the first quarter of this year about why Black Lives Matter. I I was introduced to her from there, and we had a fantastic conversation around issues of race and issues of equality and issues of you know minority and patriarchy and it was just it was just really a good chat at the right time uh, Muktas told me a few weeks ago that she was going to be in Dunedin this week and um, she is the kind of person that when they are available to add to the social discourse, we must include her. Um, that sounds a bit heavy, like it's going to be a big heavy thing. The flip side to that is I just fucking love talking to her and loved having in for an hour. Here is Dr. Maktas Azamandi on the Department of Conversation. Here we go. We're live. Me and you again. Dr. Maktas Azamandi, thank you for joining us in studio in Dunedin. How exciting. Yes. Do you know that you were on this podcast 30 episodes ago? Because you did the number 100th one during lockdown. Um, actually, I was in the studio, wasn't I? I had yeah, the same background. Were. I you just were. moved it because I was in my bedroom for about 25 of them. And I was one of the first ones down here. And you were number 100. And now you're number 131. I'm very yeah. excited. And I'm so thankful that you connected with us to say, I'm going to be in town because... I am always going to talk to you if you're around. <laughs> oh, it was such a good time last time. So I thought, oh, I'll just tell you that I'm going to be in town, even though I didn't know what, what I could potentially be talking about. And look, isn't it the craziest of crazy times? Absolutely. That <sighs> what you do, right? Let, let's do that first of all. Let's explain what you do, your area of research, because even though you're not like a political scientist. So the, the subject matter of what you talk about is intrinsically intertwined with politics. It can't not be, eh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do have to say that my first degree is in political science. So I think my heart is in that discipline. But yeah, I got a PhD in peace and conflict studies and I'm now in educational studies. So yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I don't think anything is not political. I think this notion mm. that people can convince themselves that, oh, I am not political is a very privileged position and it's just it's just a very it lacks understanding of how society works um so everything is political at the end of the day what we eat is political where our clothes come from is political so. that, make, that makes it sound like i mean it makes it sound like do you know sometimes they say ignorance is bliss yeah <laughs> it is <laughs> so it's like uh, Everything is political because when you talk about food, I'm thinking about like, you know, carbon miles, that sort of thing. So that's a political. Yeah, of course. Also, if you want to choose local over, you know, something that comes from, you know, I don't know, five continents away or how it's priced, the taxes we pay on it. There's always politics involved in all of these collective decisions we make. 
I just think people people think when they think of politics, they think electoral politics yeah, and yeah. being interested in voting and political parties, which is, I think, one aspect of what I understand to be political behavior. But, you know, just us being able to have a conversation about the world is in an, in and of itself a political conversation. Wow. And look, I've just realized I want to thank you for uh, coming in in the morning because I've got my morning radio voice on. I didn't even realize until just then. It's like oh, I used to do breakfast radio and... Um, I, for some reason, would have a deeper voice in the morning. So I've got a deeper voice this morning. I haven't heard this for a long time. So that's lovely as well. I'm being silly. Being stupid, actually. Um, because I remember describing you last time, um, uh, maybe poorly, but kind of as an expert in racism and anti-racism, because that's actually what your PhD was in. Yeah, I think that's the main research area that I have is looking at anti-racist politics, what it means, how we've done it in the past, what it might look like in the future, what kind of anti-racist practices work and which ones don't work as well. And yeah, I did. I wrote my PhD on New Zealand and Spain. So of course, I'm not an expert for every single country. But there's some things that you can say and universalize and generalize and make claims about. Yeah. It's a good time, I think, to have that research expertise in some ways, um, to be somebody who's interested in racism for such a long time and suddenly people actually want to talk about it. Are you, are you finding opportunities? Like, obviously, you, you wrote a piece about Black Lives Matter and why Black Lives Matter, and that's how we connected. Yes. But are you finding that because of the time, you're being approached by groups, people, individuals, news outlets at the moment because of your expertise? Has the, has the opportunities risen? I'm not sure if I'm being approached, but I put myself a bit out there so I kind of invite myself into spaces right. so I've been doing a bit of speaking and I've seen that particularly around the university or educational institutions there's an interest to host conversations I'm not quite sure how far everybody's willing to go mm -hmm. but I definitely think in media um, there's been more conversations about it and for me at work in in Christchurch and at Canterbury, there have been a few opportunities now. So I'll be speaking next week again. And I think, yeah, for, for me personally, I can definitely say there's been a bit more exposure and a willingness to have these conversations, which is great. It's, I think that's where we should start. We need to be willing to have conversations. Well, also, um, when you connected with me, whatever it was, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, a week, whatever it was, that this year has turned into one blur, you know. Um, I was thinking, oh, yeah, great, we could follow up on our previous conversation. We talked about George Floyd. We Because since then we've had things like the uh, Breonna Taylor, you mm. know, and, and the um, results that have come out from the charges for one police officer there. But then you've got the last 72 hours, and it's like Trump, um, not even dog whistling, but absolutely calling out the Proud Boys to stand by. And then, of course... Last night, Trump has got COVID. Now, I know that, well, I was going to say, maybe that's not an area of race, but, you know, it disproportionately affects minorities, COVID. So there's a conversation to have there. And I'm just like, holy crap, I just don't feel like I can start any conversation. Like my 14-year-old, I was sitting upstairs last night watching uh, live stream news. I think I was watching NBC or whatever this is. ABC, I was watching ABC. And even she was like, holy mega, what does this mean? And, and it just, it affects everything the whole world and from a position perhaps of race or you know racism racist you know if trump gets back in i think once again hate crimes have gone up since he's been in and and, and minorities have been disproportionately impacted even more so than they were under a trump presidency so 
I, I just don't know what else to say other than you know what and, and oh and and of yeah and of course the debate but but the Trump COVID thing is just crazy. I flipped out when I read that last night. I was like, you, you couldn't write this movie script. You wouldn't. Be, it wouldn't be believable. You go, oh come on, one step too far. I, I think the whole 2020 year you couldn't have written as a movie script. It's, you know, we really just need aliens arriving this year and it would just be a perfect roundup. It's honestly very unbelievable the, the way things are unfolding, not just in the States, I think in a lot of other countries too. Um, in some ways, I think Trump having been, you know, like diagnosed with COVID is... is is an opportune moment for the people who've been doubting that it's actually real. Because I think there is, there's a few, there's a big, big, large of people, like a chunk of people in the US who just haven't believed that COVID-19 is actually a real disease. So I think this is one of the ways in which people can actually say, hey, look, the president's got it now, so you need to take this seriously. But of course, I'm, I'm always worried, what is the outcome going to be? Is it going to make it worse? Because I didn't watch the debate, I just read and followed up of on the debate the day after, and I thought we're facing a situation of bad and worse. Because if he gets reelected, then there's four more years of this craziness, and if he doesn't win, then he's very. Is he going to accept the election outcome? No, because people have tried to ask him, "Would you accept the election outcomes and a short, smooth transition?" And he's been incapable of responding to that question and what he said about the Proud Boys. We should all be terrified. We should, you know, if it's it's very difficult for him to even just say that white supremacy is unacceptable. People weren't even asking him for anything else. It was just lip service and mm. he couldn't even deliver on that. It was a softball question. Yeah, very much so. So I'm I'm a bit worried every time I talk to friends in the in the US. I think this people are just not sure what's going to happen because there's the choices don't look good at the moment. So I'm not quite sure if him being sick is an opportunity for pause and reflection or if there is an op- a potential to, f- to use that strategically. I don't, I don't know. I'm also like, I'm not a political commentator and the US politics is in my area of expertise, but I have lots of feelings about it because it is something that affects the whole world. The whole pause and reflection thing, like I don't think that it will make any difference whatsoever. Check this is one. This is a guy from uh, a campaign a couple of weeks ago, right? When he was being asked about COVID, this is what he said. Why are you not wearing a mask? Because there's no COVID. It's a it's a fake pandemic created to destroy the United States of America. But the president said to Bob Woodward that there is a virus, the coronavirus, and that it is deadly. That's his opinion. The truth is, is that the, the CDC said there's only less than 10,000 people yeah. die from COVID. The other 190,000, only less than 10,000 people die from coin eight other mortalities. So I think that when you say the pause and reflection, I, I, I think there's no good outcome for this um, because as we speak, the helicopter is lifting off um, from the White House to take Trump to hospital as we speak. Um, there's no good outcome because as as terrible as Trump has been at the horrible things that he's done and been involved with, no one, oh, I don't say no one, I don't wish any harm on him. I mm-hmm. hope he recovers. I hope he recovers well. But if he does, he'll be like, yeah, see, coronavirus, no big deal. I survived it. And I'm supposedly, you know, got lots of modalities and there's not a problem. 
And if he dies from it, people like that will be like the deep states killed him. Yeah. Um, I just don't, I, I honestly, I, I can't see how this can be a good outcome anyway from him getting it. And I mean, the, the, I think the worst case scenario would have been if he had been asymptomatic, which it doesn't appear that he is, because if we just bring up that New York Times page, you can see again, people who are watching, that's the helicopter literally flying from thing there now. Um, asymptomatic would have been the worst of all, because that means no real symptoms, and he would have been, no, it's fine, it's not a problem, it's just like the flu, and that would have been worse again. So I don't know, I'm just I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm also fearful. wondering, I mean, he, he will have the best access to medical care, and... I don't know what the protocol is there as well. If he if there's a reason for moving him to hospital, and I, I, I think th- the the worst that we can do in times like these is everybody is so engaged in speculation, mm. and and people are reducing any kind of factual analysis as a matter of opinion. And obviously, anything I'm saying at the moment about what's happening to Trump is based on pure speculation. But I think what we find ourselves in is a situation where it's become really hard to talk about the actual facts, the tangible things that are in front of us because people will just say, well, that's your opinion and you can have your opinion. And I struggle with that. And we had a very brief um, chat initially about like conspiracy theories. I think that's where we're at. We're, we're seeing so many people who are just indulging these ideas where everything, literally anything can be reduced to a matter of opinion for it mm. in order for it to be dismissed or for people to say, well, that's your side of the story and I just hold on to my side of the story and I think, well, some things, it's not about perspective. It's not about, do you like this bright orange jumper? Yeah, we could definitely have different opinions on a bright orange jumper, but whether or not... Um, I don't know, a disease is real or it has harmful impacts on people. Yeah, that's just shocking. And th- in a country where 200,000 people have died more, of... More, yeah, 215 or so now. Yeah, so I think... And that's just negligence. That's just willful, very willful negl- negligence. And But we have that here too, you know? Like, I think there's people here who say, oh, it's exaggerated and it's it's really not the cause of death for people. So I just... I don't know how that happened because i really don't know where to go back to in time and pinpoint this is this is where we see it on un, unravel and go into these really deep deep rabbit holes for lots of people but it's something i see across different nations not just in the united states and i think that's why it's so deeply dangerous it's interesting you talk about the conspiracy theory i, I had an academic on um a couple of weeks ago 10 days ago Stephen lewandowski and his area of expertise uh he, he, he did it through researching climate change and he did it through researching climate change deniers. But his research is pretty clear that you can place it on any kind of deniers, vaccine deniers, mask deniers, whatever it is, conspiracy theorists in general. And his research showed that the closer someone aligns himself with libertarianism and the free market economics, um, the, the more likely they are to buy into conspiracy theories. And so he was able to demonstrate that's the sector of society that does it. And there's your Trump people in a nutshell, you know. Mm. 
And I was always thinking there's this conservative religious thing going on. But actually, there are a lot of religious people, let's talk about climate change, who think that, you know, their God gave them this planet, so they want to mm. look after it. And so they're not in that camp. So it's not the religious people. It's the religious people who more adhere to the free market state and libertarianism. That's the more likely place to find them. Now, to be clear, and I had this conversation with um, Sam Cedar the other day, that I'm not saying all libertarians are like this, and but the trends showed in his research that that's where there were. And we talked about, um, I love the flat earth conspiracy theory, I, only because I find it hilarious and I find it fun and I like talking to them. And I've had two flat earthers on this podcast. You know, that means I've given about one and a half percent of my podcast time to flat earthers. Um, but what I realized quite quickly is it's almost, to coin a phrase, a gateway conspiracy theory. Because when the Christchurch like a gateway drug, yeah, I know. So I don't, I don't buy into that theory anymore. No one really does, but that's sort of what it is, you know. In other words, it's an easy one to get into and not really have any downstream effects from. Did we land on the moon or not? Doesn't really impact society. But when I was talking with some of these flat earthers, and then they went from that to the Christchurch massacre was a false flag. In other words, it was the government killing its own citizens. I was like, whoa. This is so. In other words, they go through that into other conspiracy theories. So sometimes it's not even the conspiracy theory that people believe in; it's the likelihood that they will go to the next one, or the likelihood that if they believe in one, then they're very likely to believe in a raft of them: the deep state, the you know, pedophile ring of people in pizza parlors amongst Democrats, you know, the whatever it is. And that's the thing that I realised is quite scary. Absolutely. I think for me, what I, because I, I remember Merrick making that comparison and I took that actually out in the, in the piece was that people who, who deny racism is actually real or is a problem, not just on, on like some exceptional individual levels, but systemically in most of, um, society, in most of our societies is like talking to flat earthers. I felt, you know, it was people who are questioning something that is really well established which is very, very, very hard. And then it kind of also brings us to this in this to this position where we have to justify debating everything. You know, I find now being in an academic context, there's so much emphasis on providing all the perspectives. And I think people mistake that with having to debate with people who are debating ideas that have sometimes been debunked for thousands of years or like a flat earth yes yeah. um or debating with people who whose version of the debate is questioning somebody else's humanity the water if you want thank you um so i think that i find really troublesome you know is that why should we give platform to white supremacists so that they can present their arguments and i think wow so we're reducing we're reducing debates to some of us have to convince that we should be treated as humans and then this other position which is dehumanizing and advocating for violence and diminishing humans then appears as a worthwhile position to actually debate publicly and i said well one of us is actually just justifying their existence and that we shouldn't be asked to do that you know it's an interesting thing but i i i don't disagree with you on the bigger thing but i've been the person on the other side when I was working for ZB, 
in the second half of the first decade of the century. I wanted to talk to a lot of people about climate change. I wanted to get people on. I was still someone who was trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what was going on. And Greenpeace, for example, took the position we won't give a platform to a climate change denier. And the point I made to them then, and I'm not suggesting I'm black and white like this now, but I remember having a conversation with someone from Greenpeace saying, you've had the luxury of having a completely open dialogue about this reading all the research, coming to a conclusion with a full conversation. What you're doing now is stopping me from having that conversation because I genuinely want to hear and figure it out for myself. So I don't disagree with you, but I wonder if there's levels of it as well. You know, like uh, Fox News always talks about, we put out both sides of the conversation, and that's bullshit because they'd never put out like a, here's how to groom a young child, here's how you don't. So there are some things they wouldn't do. Right. So I guess for me, I'm wondering where is that line of all these conversations where we then go too dangerous to platform the opposing view. Healthy conversation can be had. I I don't know where that is or what it is, but I know for me in 2002, I wanted to be able to have that full conversation. And the the stopping a part of the conversation was something that actually probably led to me taking longer to come to the, 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 the obvious conclusion now. But I was a young you know, do trying to figure this out. So I, I do think about that as well. I do think, and so for example, you know, Billy TK, this guy who's, yeah. I, I've, I could have had him on in a heartbeat. There's no question. I, I haven't had him on, right? Because I've, I've made the decision that that position is too dangerous, right? And I don't want it to go out there about denying COVID. So I've done the same thing that I'm now saying I wanted to not do 20 years ago or 15 years ago. But I still think there is a, there is a line of, enabling people to hear the full conversation to get to the conclusion i think we need nuance what we don't have right now is a lot of nuance and i think we also have to understand just because you haven't had that conversation it doesn't mean that that conversation hasn't been had for hundreds of years in some some of the examples that we're that we're addressing so like climate change first comes up in in the scientific research in the 1930s right people have been talking about climate change since the 1930s it doesn't take up the the space and recognition until much much later and that's okay and i think it's there's there's certain areas where an an individual who doesn't have the trained expertise might not be able to fully to fully understand and that's okay and we we recognize that with the medical profession we understand that if you need surgery that that is not something that you can teach yourself and then do in your home <laughs> with you know a butter knife so we understand that if you if a person needs surgery that there is a clear person who is the expert who will conduct the surgery in a particular facility under particular circumstances right but we've kind of reduced certain forms of political debate as being detached from that so suddenly everybody can be an expert on climate change or anybody can be an expert on racism and have ideas on how to fix it. And we don't actually trust that nuanced conversation has to come with people who have lived experience, who might be able to speak to what that actually looks like because they are impacted by it. Um, People who have the historical scientific expertise in it. And I think, yes, of course we we should promote literacy So we should promote media literacy that people can open a newspaper or turn the news on and be able to understand the information that's presented to them. We also need political literacy so that people Mm. understand how politics works. What I find really fascinating when I talk to people who uh, 
conspiracy theory of Finn, I would say, because I don't think I know anybody who's really deeply in it. But I'm coming more and more across people who like some of the ideas. And one of the ideas that I find being picked up is we need to question things. We need to be critical of issues. And I love that. I'm a person who's very critical. I don't necessarily look at any government and think, yes, they're going to do exactly what they're promising me to do. Or this political policy is going to solve all of our lives. But I can be critical of that because I then spent time on finding out what does the policy actually do? Um, what was it before? What is the change actually implying? Is there a change or are people just saying there's going to be a change? So for, in order for us to be critical, we have to have a solid understanding of the thing that we want to be critical of. And I think people just want to question everything to the point that they want to ask, you know, question if the earth is is, is flat or not. And I think that's what I find I, really dangerous. I like think, if you want to be critical, right. then engage in knowing. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. And I think some people use what I've just said, I want to know both sides, as a way to just uh, be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Um, uh, I'm still I'm still thinking now. So, for example, I've got a couple of academics, hopefully, still coming up that we are, are going to be talking about the euthanasia bill. Mm-hmm. You know, is that something we should be talking about? Should one of those positions be deplatformed because actually it's a it's a harmful position? The same for the cannabis bill. Should we be talking about that or not? And something you said, which I'd love to delve into more deeply with you, with myself over the next t- 10 years, is this idea of lived experience. And and I know that this might be a, a bit controversial and upsetting to some people, and I'm not, not saying it to do it. I do have a concern when we default to lived experience that we're also then for defaulting to anecdotal evidence. Because mm. someone's lived experience, like someone says, well, you're, you're, you can't deny my lived experience. Well, if the research doesn't then back that up, I have a concern for people, use, and I'm not saying you, but just mm. the conversation, people using that as a way of shutting down debate. You know, you're denying my lived experience. No, no, your lived experience is just not representative of the research. And that does happen a lot in conversation at the moment. And when you say we need more nuance, I'm just like, I want to go, yes, nuance, <laughs> please, more nuance. Because it's so many of these conversations that are black and white at the moment, that aren't black and white, sorry, that have shades of grey, are being talked about as a black and white way. So, But I, I think that for me, conspiracy theories think they're adding nuance, but what they're advocating is a very dangerous, detached from reality perspective on what's going on. And when I say lived experience, I'm not saying, oh, anybody can come and say, of course, I didn't make this experience, so it's not real. So when we, usually when people say, you know, lived experiences in with feminist research or critical race research is that policies have been made for people by people who do not live those lives, right? Like policies that are developed for communities without those communities present in the conversation of what is actually needed. So I think that's what I mean. It's not about, oh, everything has to be in line with everybody's lived experience because we will all experience the world very differently. And I experience the world very differently from people who might have very similar upbringings than, than I have because, you know, at some point your your life takes different turns and you go into different professions and so forth. But that doesn't mean denying that certain communities are collectively disenfranchised. And I think that's what, for me, I use lived experience to highlight knowledge that's that has evidence and is informed by 
study of history and research and science, and I know science is also a problematic area. I don't want to say that science is the solution because I don't actually think it is. But I think we need to make claims that we that speak to just more than you know one person, obviously. Mm. And I think that's what often gets gets lost in conversations about broad-based politics for me because we have people in power that make decisions for people that they don't actually know, right? Like people make decisions for beneficiaries well, well, and don't even know what that looks like. Like when we when we say this is this this amount of money is totally fine yeah, to live yeah. off. I'm like, is it though? Yeah, yeah, is yeah, it yeah, do yeah. you actually know what that means? And you know, like describing whole communities in ways that is really demeaning and makes it okay for us to exploit them. I have issues with that. You know, like it's for me it's a very anti-human approach to life. Like this which I mean, I think I, we see, like we don't necessarily live in a world where we are very centered on caring and <laughs> looking after Let, Let's follow something down the track. I'd, I'd really like to follow this down because this is actually something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and looking over and reading about at the moment. Um, you talked about feminist feminist movement and, and when you say people making decisions who aren't a part of the group. I mean, the, the patriarchy and you know men running society is an ov- is obvious and clear conclusion to why feminist is, feminism is important and necessary and needs to be there. You know, women taking control of, of their places, their spaces, their futures and being self-determining. Yeah? Is that a fair kind of cis male genders a synopsis of a part of it well i mean my feminist me i would say I mean, obviously there's different different ways of being feminist and there's different types of feminism but i don't necessarily think that feminism is about just women's uplifting women i think feminism is about questioning the way society has been set up i love teaching feminism by looking at how how it impacts everybody in the society not just um, women and how it impacts, you know, young men as well. How it, how our ways of thinking through feminism, why, why that matter, why that matters for people who are gender nonconforming, for um, trans women. It's basically just helping us think through ways in which we can eliminate oppression. I think for me that's what it is, and I don't want to also glorify feminism because I have a very particular kind of feminism. Well, and, and this is actually what I was going to ask you about. And look, I feel a bit. Uh, a little bit shy having this mm-hmm. conversation with you because I you're sort of the expert and I'm completely not for so many reasons but I find it fascinating that even when you're within a group of people who are making decisions for themselves so women to women say for example there is still that same conflict now correct me if I'm wrong explain it to me if I've got it completely wrong but it seems that there's a battle at the moment between second wave and third wave feminism people like Jermaine Greer who some of the third wave feminists, the young, let's say, millennial feminists and stuff, are literally standing on her shoulders to see further, are now seen as a transphobic turf mm. and an embarrassment to feminism. And it's like, so it's a, it's a, it's a, just a fascinating, and I don't want to sound like too clinical, look from the outside in as even when you're in a situation when uh, it's not necessarily someone determining for you, it's part of your quote unquote group, there's still not the nuance enough even amongst that to turn it into a black and white conversation. I don't think that's the way it works. I think this is I think I see that as as accountability. I think most people understand that we all stand on the shoulders of people who've paved the way for us. But that doesn't mean just because people pave the way for us and do amazing work that 
that becomes an escape from accountability. So to me, it speaks volumes to the capacity of people within a, uh, an umbrella term to be able to say, well, we can still call you out on this. And it doesn't mean that we shun you for life. It's just that some of the ideas that you're propagating are very harmful and it's okay to call that out. And it's also okay to tie them into broader questions around when we were talking about what does it mean to be a woman, those are not new questions. Like these are questions we've had for a really long time. And we have had conversations about why shouldn't we essentialize experiences and say this is who you are because biology dictates so. When really, if you look at it from a biological point of view, biologists would be like, no, we're not actually <laughs> advocating that there is somehow this fake notion that there's two genders, right? So I think for me, that's, that is actually really healthy. What I see there is is people saying there needs to be accountability. Like if you're advocating for something that leaves people out and diminishes people and propagates ideas that feminists 40 years ago were also fighting against. And for us to say that, you know, feminism has always been trans exclusionary. I think that's a lie. I think there's always different trends and people have called each other out and tried to push for accountability. So I think that, that's that's the part of progressive politics that I'm and I'd hate the word progressive, but like the <laughs> radical politics that I'm interested in is yeah. where we can where we can embrace being held accountable and being challenged on our shortcomings. And there's nothing wrong with that. If somebody says, hey, this is all nice and cute, but you kind of forgot a whole group here. Well, that's to me, that's an it's invitational. I think I mean, that's the teacher in me. I, I always say if you're being called out, it's an opportunity for you. It's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to point to you that there's something that you can go out and learn. It's not just about leaving you outside. So I think those are the conversations that I like to push. And people say, oh, we should kind of chuck feminism now because look, they're all fighting each other. And I'm like, that's a very wrong assessment of what's actually happening. And these conversations aren't new either. You know, when people say, oh, we're now canceling everybody because they're problematic. And I'm like, first of all, inaccurate because the people who are being canceled are not necessarily the people who are being problematic we should just look at history at how minority groups and women not getting positions and being bullied out of places that's the real cancel culture but it's about accountability don't we want a society in which we hold people accountable it's not so let me ask you this and i i don't necessarily want to get into a topic a conversation around a particular um, a particular argument that's going on, although if that's useful for the conversation, I'm, I'm happy too. But when we say accountability, I, I think as well, f who, is, who is deciding what is the, the new accountable standards and is there a chance, and this is why I don't want to get into necessarily a conversation around a particular uh, issue because I don't want to make it sound like I'm attacking that, that, that group, but is there a chance that the new movement going forward has actually has got it wrong and if the and, and if a new movement going forward whatever that is i don't want to make it sound like any particular movement mm. has got it wrong then isn't wouldn't that just be then bullying from the people who, who are let's say one step away from or one step behind them or whatever it is i would need a i would need a yeah i know it's hard because i don't i don't want to make it sound like i'm going yeah what if they've got it wrong about uh, about the transgender community, I, I don't. Oh, no, I don't want to have no. that conversation. Yeah, neither, because no. I I don't like conversations yeah. that you know like question people's humanity. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess I'm saying, uh, who sets the new standards? I can ask that question. Who sets the new standards for people to be accountable for? Well, I think we we form those c collectively. So I think for me, it's about creating. Well, hang on. Does that mean therefore it's majority thing? No, I don't think it's majority. So things. when you say collectively, what does that mean? 
Well, I mean, I don't think it's just me saying I think this has to happen like that. And I sit in my home and advocate that on Facebook. But I think it's when we collectively organize and we can see that. I think we can we can actually see for when it comes to racial justice, climate change, rethinking gender, our younger generations are actually quite switched on in so many ways. Like if you ask young people you know, what their interests are and how they exist in the world, they have a really solid understanding. And I think, yeah, we, we're working towards societies that I, I would like to see are more inclusive in the sense that they make space for people to be in, and be in, in, in the ways that they need to be in this world and not be diminished and not have rights taken from them or put, you know, just putting obstacles into people's ways. So I think for me, it's about recognition and access and when people organize and criticize and ask for accountability that is often a reflection of pointing out to the obstacles that you might face that other communities don't face mm -hmm. or demanding rights that other people have that are denied to you so i think to me there's a difference to me when people are advocating to be recognized and have their rights respect it it's very different from people who are organizing because they want their own rights respected but justify that other people don't have rights make that to me that there's a difference between those positions so i'm thinking now i i'm i'm not trying to be contrarian myself but i'm thinking about those words of organizing and collective what if that group is a collective and they're organizing but they have a completely abhorrent position. I mean, they do. Like, 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 like we can we can go back boys. to the Trump the Trump yeah. thing right now. Yeah, exactly. The 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 mass deniers. Mm. So then they're calling out people as we're describing, but they've got it wrong. We would say, I guess. Then as a as a group, how do we know that? I, I remember writing a piece once, which was ideology versus intelligent debate. Mm. And the point that I, I got hauled over the calls by calls by some blogger um, when I was working for a radio station and accused of being a a, a right wing Christian fundamentalist because I was working for a, a group that had links to that that world, and it was because I wasn't supporting a union, the Ports of Auckland Union, for a particular thing that they were standing for. Um, I then wrote a piece, and the point that I was writing the piece was I didn't support the decision that this union made and this point for this reason. Now, here's all the other times I have supported unions, like the Teachers Union and all mm. these places. In fact, so much so that when National Standards came out, the Teachers Union took um, my blog piece and put it on the front of their NZDI page. So I'm not anti-union. I didn't think that was a good re uh, idea for that point for this reason. But this person you know, used that one position I was taking and, and lambasted me as being a you know, a mouthpiece of the right and a right-wing nutter, which couldn't be further from the truth of anyone who knows me. And so the point I was making with the piece I wrote, uh, Ideology versus Intelligent Debate, is that I think we have to always acknowledge that sometimes we're wrong. Mm. No one's got a 100% perfect record. No. So how do we know that in this instance, whatever this instance is, we're on the right side of history, we're the ones that are the collective or organising on the right meaning correct, not meaning politically right, mm. the correct place. And we're not the one. That's the time. That's the one time this three-year period that we haven't got it wrong. How do we know that? Or how do how do we have accountability for ourselves to know that? I mean, it's a very philosophical question. How do we know? How, how do we how do we know something is just? You know, like how do we know something is right? Um, but you know what I mean. It's like if we if we acknowledge that sometimes we're wrong, then that means people who have an ideology of a particular area 
in politics, let's say, or in, in a philosophical or in even a moral place, logic dictates to me, unless I'm wrong, this is my time of being wrong, that sometimes their ideology is going to be wrong. And what if this is the time? How do we then judge that and make that, I don't want to say fear, I don't care about fear, equitable, I don't know what the right word is, but to everybody, that that doesn't become then a bully pulpit because they've got this is the time they're wrong, whoever the there mm-hmm. is, like the anti-maskers, and this is the time that other people, the our position because of our ideology, the other position is actually the one that makes more sense as we should be following. I mean, for me with politics, it's it's not just about like I mean, some some of the things we can ask in terms of right and wrong as a, as a moral question, um, but for me, it's about how decisions made politically. Like I'm more of a how person and not a why, because I often feel like it's I, I find how easier to explain than why. Right. Um, so I think how does this work? How does this play out if we choose this way and it goes forward and how would that look like if we did it this way so you you kind of go downstream this is what will happen from this decision well no i just think that we we take we take i my decisions are based obviously on certain political philosophies that i hold certain ideas about an economic system that i um believe in um not necessarily just out of like my gut but based on the things i have read Right. And I I also know that my politics isn't necessarily always in line with some of the choices I make in my everyday. And that's also a reality for most of us. We don't always do and act in ways that is perfectly in line with our values and ideals. So I think for me, it's it's about, yeah, understanding that. Like I, f- I feel like that's a hard question to answer because it becomes it's so abstract at this particular moment in time. And then we get entangled. And the abstract is really important. I think the abstract is important. But for many people, the abstract has become an escape to not engage with how their decisions, and particularly their political decisions, have a real impact on people in the immediate. Yeah, let, right? Let, like let, people say, oh, my rights, I, my freedom is being limited if I'm told to wear a mask and it's not enforced if you don't. And I'm like, it isn't though. And they try to make it this philosophical debate that then distracts from us saying, you're putting people at risk and you don't want to talk about putting people at risk because you want to have this philosophical conversation over having the rights to certain kinds of freedoms, which is also not in line with how we define rights and freedoms. That's a you know, whole different debate. Right to get a sandwich at Subway. Yeah. Without a mask on. You know? Yeah. And and fundamentally not understanding how society works. Like in society we always make certain decisions based on the collective good and then we grant certain freedoms based on individual freedom but we constantly making our freedoms are constantly limited Mm. in our you could argue that oh your freedom is limited when you have to stop at the red light (laughs) right yeah yeah. but we now agree that actually stopping at a red light um is good for societal functioning but don't you think that this is where the whole collective and how big does that collective have to be comes in we as a society Let's 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 not be ridiculous and say hundred percent because there's always going to be one contrarian. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent have agreed that that's what the red light means. We, when we talk about these conversations, whatever they be, be they masks, be they the I, se- I don't know, okay, the seatbelt. So when the seatbelt was introduced and was made mandatory, there was plenty of people who were oppo- who opposed the seatbelt. Yeah. plenty of people who refused to um, buckle in, and people who organized politically that you know the state shouldn't mandate seatbelts in cars. Bloody 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 blah. 
so as long as people have lived together, mm. like if we look at, and anthropology is not my research expertise, but wherever there's a record of humans having clustered and lived together, there is also a record of these humans having created some sorts of rules of engagement. You know, so if we were going going camping and we ended up getting lost and then there's five of us somehow tracked somewhere in the bush, we would set up some rules of how do we how are we going to do this? Is mm. everybody going to like fetch for their own? Probably not. Like we'd make we'd agree sometimes spoken, sometimes non-spoken. Oh, we should just like all stick together. You know what I mean? Like chip in with finding fire or finding something to eat. So I think society regulates itself and and makes decisions that then impact the collective, even if not every single person is on board on it. Because making decisions for collectives is not that we don't live in a country that makes every decision based on consensus. So I think sometimes yeah, sometimes people conflate when something is new, they can see it happening. They can see it happening in front of their eyes, like with the masks, but they don't actually remember that there's plenty of other instances in which we have introduced rules and regulations mm -hmm. from the seatbelt to not walking down the street naked, right? We live in a society in which most places would fine you if you walked out naked. And somehow a lot of people think that that was a normal thing that is in place. I'm like, no, these are all things that we put in place. And if you put them in place, you can also take them away. I think that's... Um, there's that aspect too. There was a time when women didn't wear sh pants. There was a time when women couldn't vote. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it sounds so funny, a eh? woman not wearing pants in this day and age. Even you know? Um, so, so the interesting thing that I'm thinking through here, and, and look, I, I'm so thankful that you're here because what you're doing is giving my brain a workout. And, and although I agree with you about the abstract, uh, that sometimes it's harder. It's still a big part of it. So, so I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, for example, um, you know, I know one of the positions of the euthanasia debate coming up or the euthanasia decision coming up is that there is a group of people who are saying, I'm not anti-euthanasia, I just don't like this legislation. I also know that there are people who, no matter what the legislation is, they wouldn't agree to it. So they are actually anti-euthanasia. Yeah. So they sort of are approaching it in sort of an abstract, no, it's fine, but this is just not for me this time around, but it'll never be fine for them. So I think looking at it, look, looking at it like that, like from a, I don't know, abstract is the right word there, but um, I like. I mean, I actually really have enjoyed the conversations on that particular bill. I find that one has been. It is a very polarizing topic, and it's actually a very sensitive topic. But I find the conversations that I have heard from people who support the bill, the people who have criticized the bill, the people who are against it completely, I've gotten a lot of nuance in those conversations because I've heard a lot of people saying. I don't I don't like the wording of the bill. I think it's not strong enough. It's dangerous because it could open up um, potential harm for communities that are already at risk. For, mm -hmm. for example, the disability community. Yeah, sure. I think the disability community has led a very, very nuanced um, presentation of what the dangers are. Um, and then there's been people who say for, you know, religious reasons, they would never support something like that. And then there's the, the people who... Um, who are advocating because of the, the experiences of family members or something that they're they're going through medical personnel, and I think that to me also speaks to that is what a society should do. It doesn't mean that the conversation comes up and boom, we have a solution to it. I think that process of engaging, informing, 
informing people mm -hmm. and giving them a lot of platforms to go and hear. Why is the disability community saying this? Um, why are people who are arguing from a very religious point of view saying, right? And then there's the people who say, well, I don't actually oppose euthanasia in itself, but I don't like this particular bill. And that to me is like, this is really good because they're not saying no, they're just saying the way you've presented it to me, I don't think is per is good enough. Go back to the drawing board and come up with something that could be better. Um, so you so could I, have I have found this conversation really, really interesting because I have very strong views of what I would want for myself. It's funny, um, I, I don't know. I don't. I, my mum passed away actually two years ago, coming up this Sunday. And I, I thought that I'd come out of that experience being very clear. Don't, I don't have a clue. I literally don't have a clue what my decision is going to be mm -hmm. yet. And I'm one of the reasons I want to get these two academics in this state. Maybe they, they can help me figure it out for myself. For um, me, it's been for me, it's been really having people who have a different view on me and then who set me down and said, well, this is if you read this. And then I read it and I was like, I can totally understand why people would now say they're not happy with the bill, but they're not necessarily saying no forever. Um, this so one, I was like, I'm quite like I was quite surprised because I never, I never thought that I would move, and I have. Yeah. Um, so and then I can't vote because I'm not a resident, so right. I obviously have opinions about this. But you, but you get to influence a whole bunch of students as a as I, an No, I don't. I think I uh, think I'm kind of kidding. I'm not, I'm not saying you're <laughs> politically up here. Um, I, I was thinking as well, though. I deal um, with feminism every now and again. <laughs> I was thinking that. Um, a couple of things, right? First of all, I stick with the debate because about the euthanasia because that's in my head at the moment. Um, is that there? There could be some people that go, we shouldn't be having this conversation as an advocate in the you know disability sector. We shouldn't even be having this conversation because it's going to put some of the disabled community in harm's way. So, but we have decided we're going to have this. But what I, what we were saying much earlier on in the conversation about how. You know, where is the line between this is a healthy and safe conversation to have and where is the line between having this conversation causes harm either to the planet because it's a climate denier or to a person because it's about, I don't know, it's a gender debate or, or whatever it is. Um, and that makes me think there's always going to be some people who think we shouldn't be having this conversation. Should we allow those people to dictate it. Because in general, I'm like, even though I've done it myself, and look, I'll be very clear, I haven't approached Billy TK. He may have said no to me anyway, but I suspect he probably wouldn't have. Um, so I'm doing it myself. I'm censoring because I don't want to have it out there. But but in general, in general, I'm more about um, good conversation is the best antidote to bad conversation in general, although not black and white. I mean, I think there's a difference between not having a conversation and providing platform and amplifying voices. I think there's a big difference for amplifying, me. Amplifying, okay. So I think if if we constantly are amplifying speech that leads to violence, I have a problem with that. Which doesn't mean that we can't that that speech will disappear just because we're not giving it a platform because that speech will happen in other avenues. But I would I would always say we need to be mindful of what we sanction at the end of the day if we give we it a, as individuals so so the yeah, example well, we, but also as a collective for but as example, an example for me i have to be careful like i've chosen not to amplify mm -hmm. the the yeah. master nice. so that's a personal decision for me i didn't want to do that although i do acknowledge it probably would have been quite a good podcast with probably quite a good yeah. viewer and but i've chosen not to do it yeah but i but i also think it's it's not just because like, you know sometimes people say well i did it because i think then people hear a critical critical view and I don't necessarily think that's how speech operates. I think um, communication scholars can tell us how does speech 
how does speech function in society? So mm. speech functions obviously as us like recognizing something as speech, the the positioning of it in in media as something that might have recognition. If I say something as a university lecturer, it will be different than if a five-year-old says something. So we know that speech functions differently in society. And for us to say that we shouldn't amplify speech that leads to violence doesn't mean that we're censoring that speech, not at all, because we can't actually censor it because it happens in the public realm. So for you not to put a person that potentially advocates harmful views is you actually trying to diminish the harm that is already happening in other spaces you're just choosing not to add fuel to the fire you know so when people say this is censorship i'm like it's not censorship what it actually is is damage control rather than censorship because we know we're not saying that speech should be punished we're just saying we're not actually giving that speech more space to cause more harm so I think that's how I see it. If if people say we need both views, in the university we often present students with the views that they aren't exposed to, right? Because they, they have the mainstream, they have what is on TV. So when I teach students about gender and gender equality, I don't tell them about everything that they already know because they see it on TV or they experience it. I'll mm -hmm. bring them the, the little aspect that might that they might miss or something that really troubles everything they know. Mm. Because what they know is gonna be there, and then we can just add a little bit of something that maybe makes them think, maybe trouble some of the notions that they have. Because we can't change what people know, but we can add to that conversation and maybe say, why do you have these views? Why do we think that boys shouldn't cry? Yeah. Instead of saying, oh, boys don't cry, and that's just how it's always been. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you need somebody who comes in and says, but why? Yeah, yeah. You know, or how did that happen? I, I think that's such a such. I mean, like, not to. I, I, I'm going to actually. Don't you know, an understanding. How did how did people like um you know like the people who are now conspiracy theorists or taking political positions? How did they come to be so popular? That's th what I'm interested in. I'm I like, I don't want to get rid of you. I just want to understand the logic that gave power to you. Well, but if you don't get rid of them, then those things are going to hang around and maybe influence other people. And I, and I know what you're saying. But I, but what I like about what I hear you saying is sort of how I've lived a bit of my broadcasting career. It's like what I used to love doing when I used to work in Talkback is go, why do you believe what you believe? Now, if you are just spouting talking points and you can't back up what you're not, not in an aggressive kind of way, but if you can't explain to me how you came to that conclusion, then to me it feels like your position is sort of not valid. If you can come to that conclusion and say, this is how I got here, I can go, okay, this is a position where we agree to disagree. Because I see how you've got there. I don't agree with it, but I see how you've got there. But I think back to this nuance thing, so many people, when you when you prod them and you go, give me one one level deeper, they can't. Well, but I, but I think but that's I think they can't tell you why because we rarely sit ourselves down and say oh inherently question all the views you have and that's it's not just people who think COVID isn't real a lot of people exist in this world with very strong ideas of what it means to be a woman what it means to be a man or what it means to be <laughs> successful yeah for example you know what it means to be successful is often in terms of academic um, economic labor if you make money. Right, like that is what success means. Or if you're very, if you've got hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, for most people, success is tied to these external forms of recognition mm. that are either tied to fame or money. Yep. Right, and we should ask ourselves, why do I have these views? Why do I measure myself in in, in economic worth? And I always joke to people, and I say, I sell my labor in exchange for a wage. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I go into an institution. I use my brain and my hands because I type. Like, my body functions in exchange for 
oh wait but that's not really who i am like that doesn't define whether or not i'm i'm successful if i'm a really famous person and i make tons of money but there's moments where i think to myself oh am i really successful like is you know i'm going to be 40 soon like what can i look back on right like you find yourself thinking like that because we live in a society in which that is normalized I totally get that. So I think we we want we want people who think COVID isn't real or the Earth is flat to tell us exactly why. And this is the thing. Um, and, but then when but then when they can't, like so, I've got three questions for flat Earthers that they can't answer because it doesn't work on a flat Earth model. And what they then do is they then go, "Oh, but no one's seen the Earth from space. Have you been to space?" Have you been to space and have you seen the circular? No. Well, then you can't. Yeah, you, know, you can't. You haven't experienced it, so you can't do it. So that's then. So that, I, I know. I know you're shaking. The, your head. the flat earthers, I find really like that to me. Is well, let's talk about the guy that we watched about the you know the the guy talking about that COVID's not real. He's not going to if, if something you know bad happens to Donald Trump and, and I genuinely don't want to see that happen. If it does, he's not going to come back to the conclusion of, oh man, I was wrong. I need to readjust my thought on wearing masks and social distancing he's going to go who the fuck killed donald trump was it the that was the it was the democrats democrats killed donald trump that's where and i know i don't know it personally but i I guarantee you there's going to be a sector a massive sector of trump supporters who will at the moment be coming back to they got him they got our leader Mm. he was safe but they got him but i think we're we're asking the question at the wrong moment in time so it's not how does this one individual not believe that masks are a good thing or that COVID is real or not? Is how did we create a system in which media functions in the way it does, in which police operate often without um, any consequences of the crimes they commit in, in the U.S. context, or how decisions are made politically? Um, the the electoral system that's in place that makes it so hard for people to challenge things mm-hmm. right so i think those are some of the questions because for me that one individual that might have some ludicrous ideas isn't really the problem right for what, me, what if he's one of 30 percent of america though There's yeah but then we have to ask people. ourselves how how did that how do we get to a point where those those ideas have arrived as acceptable and normal because that was done like we have created a system in which we've do you, yeah, I mean, like, it's a very big question because I can't, it's like, de- depending on where you go, you can look at it. I just think, you know, we've kind of moved away from a, of a model of critical thinking of of a politics that people can trust in. I, I think, and that's, that I think is a very, very valid civil society critique of politics because they feel like politics doesn't, electoral politics um, isn't working for them and they don't trust politicians. Yeah. And I think that trust, that lack of trust in politicians for some people turns into everything, everything is a lie. There's some mm. monster somewhere that, you know, um, and for some people it means, oh, I don't even think I want to vote because it's all the same. Yeah, what's right? the point? Right? Yeah. Um, and I think those, some of those critiques we actually need to listen to. People need to really sit down and say, how, how come people look at professional politicians and say, I just have absolutely no trust in you. I think you're all prom- promising and not delivering. Um, but there's a difference between being critical and wanting better and then saying it's all a lie you know there's also sort of like i find that there's probably a tolerance as to where people get to that point of it's all a lie like with all honesty i mean i've said this a a hundred times before i ingest politics intravenously Mm -hmm. it's the first thing i do in the morning it's the last thing i do at night and i watch it through the day when i'm in my office it's on in the background i watch that american 
presidential debate on whenever it was Thursday afternoon our time and I went fuck man if I was living in America I'd be done with politics mm. I, I reached that line mm. you know from watching those two mm. those two guys go at it like that and, and I think many people many people are at that point yeah yeah um, I was going to say as well this is uh, I'm not going to um, this is probably a bad way to do this but let me bring this up this is the uh, the professor I had on when we were, he was talking about conspiracy theories and the thing that he said and I'll actually I'll turn it up and see if I can find it while we're talking and why uh, you know he's talking about conspiracy theories can't subscribe to these conspiracy theories because they're just in total conflict with the way scientific evidence is normally uh, uh, used let me let me give you an example that, well, a couple examples that I find really illuminating when we talk about that. Um, the first one is the, the turning the absence of evidence into evidence for a conspiracy. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. There was a case recently. He, um, I, I, I'm not going to find it easily. Year, it's probably the wrong way to do it. But he talks about, um, so his research is in, is in climate denial. But what he basically says is um, her, it's... I can't remember the phrase he uses. It's what I was looking for, but it's basically a phrase he uses. If people go to my my well, sorry, not my, but the DOC NZ Facebook page, they'll see these clips. There's four or five clips from that episode, and watch the one that says why and how do people begin to believe conspiracy theories? Um, and he uses a phrase uh, which slips my mind right now, but it means basically a conspiracy theorist um, comes up with a conclusion and then fits the evidence in yeah. to fit that conclusion. And he says, no matter what the evidence is, yes. that's what it ends up being. So therefore, that gentleman we watched before that said, you know, COVID is a mm. is a is, is is designed to take down America. That's his conclusion. And so Trump, you know, if Trump gets really sick, let's hope that's no more than that. But if Trump passes away, then his conclusion doesn't change. Yeah. But the line to that conclusion is, see, I told you. They're trying to take down America with COVID and they've got the president and who else mm. are they going to get? Yeah. So his 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 path to the conclusion changes, but the conclusion doesn't change. There's something very similar that people do um, around being confronted with racism so that people can be, con can be presented with evidence and still choose to ignore it, right? Like this active willful ignorance where you assume that the information presented to you is is not in line with the reality that you have created for yourself and people have found that too when they looked at anti-racism training for example anti-racism training came out in the 70s and the idea of it was that if people would just have conversations and they would maybe meet people who were from racial minority groups they would change their racist views mm -hmm. and even though i think there is there's value in some of these workshops because they create community they give space for meeting people i think it yeah the human aspect of it i think is valuable but in terms of actually creating mindset we know that research the research into the evaluation of these workshops shows that it actually doesn't right because the ones who have very strong views um that they wouldn't describe as racist but maybe somebody externally would look at and assess and say well that's actually a racist view um don't want to change their views yeah they, they go into a situation and find anything that can affirm that view that they held before to affirm what they were thinking so if people are trying to talk about the criminal justice system and over representation of certain populations in the criminal justice system they do not take that as here is somebody pointing out to me 
that there is structural racism and people are disproportionately sentenced for to prison versus other people being able to you know get a slap on the wrist they take that as oh look that these populations are more criminal therefore i um my views about them uh are reaffirmed or i look at society and i don't see these groups in positions of power it's because they're not as smart because if they were as smart they would be on top which to me is you know is, is very similar it's not to the same extent and i think we're not working with people who um don't recognize reality but there is a little bit of that too in terms of encounter doesn't necessarily result in change so for us always advocating for civil conversation i think civil conversation is good for learning and awareness Mm. and critical thinking but it's not what changes minds and sometimes protection has to happen at a higher level and being mandated in in order to get people to the point to at least not harm to not act and harm people based on their beliefs right like legal protection for for example i think there's limitations with with the law i'm not saying just the law will fix it all but sometimes we have to put a legal protection on it because getting everybody to agree that people shouldn't be beaten in the streets yeah. um <laughs> So right like when people say we should all agree and I'm like that is not how we have advanced in the past either. Although you think about that from a societal point of view, who wouldn't agree to that? Mm-hmm. I mean people who don't agree to that. Uh, that's uh, that's another whole conversation mm-hmm. itself why someone wouldn't agree to. I mean the classic example, um, you know, go back to America is you know when Trump cleared out those um, peaceful protesters outside the White House who were sitting on the step of the church because he wanted a photo op. I mean that in itself whoever thinks that's okay that's another whole conversation around these people are in our society and they're there and they think that's okay. I think I think we can always point to the contradiction and contradictions in our views very I do quickly. like that you're playing with the Donald Trump. Yeah, um, I mean it's the very Trump, uh, <laughs> the 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 doll What the does whole that time. say subconsciously? Um, <laughs> um so well. I, I I teach you know peace and conflict studies and one of the first questions I mean I don't teach peace and conflict studies now but I have which is you know it's my passion and I often ask students is, do you think killing is wrong? Always. Everybody in the room, everybody in the room thinks that killing is wrong. Really? And, yeah. Wow. Um, because the question is killing. It's not, you don't give them, you don't give them like any details. That you're like, is, you know, should people be allowed to kill other people? And but they say no. If you ask me that question, my response would be, uh, depends on the circumstances. Yeah. But they say, you know, then they, and then I say, is, do you think people should be allowed to kill other people? And then they say, and then, so, and then eventually somebody says, Oh, well, it's different if it's in self-defense. Mm. And then they add it's, it's in, in self-defense. And then I said, okay, so what about the death penalty? And then people will be in the room who are in favor of the death penalty. Wow. And, and then they say, well, but... At, but so, hang on, so this is at university, like 18-year-olds yeah. are still in favor of the death penalty? Well, so it depends on where you are, of course, yeah. Right, wow. Um, not here. This is, again, I'm not talking about here because I don't teach peace and conflict studies in right. New Zealand. Um and which, which I, th- I think is interesting, and they justified with, well, the death, death penalty only applies to people who have committed crimes, mm. and therefore your rights can be limited. Which, but that is actually a theoretically solidly grounded perspective, whether or not, like, I, we think you can actually morally uphold it. But people will be able to make that argument. Um, and then I always say, well, what about war? Right, like war is sanctioned killing. And they're just always very surprised, and then they realize that as a society. We think killing is wrong and killing is illegal. We can't kill. Um, 
we're not allowed to kill. Like there's very, there's legal seg- like limitations around when that becomes acceptable. So yep. in self-defense, if you're, you're, you're a criminal and somebody's chasing you down, yep. for example, or, or in countries where the death penalty is legal. But somehow we think if two countries go to war, that in the context of war, we accept that yes, killing will happen. You know, we think it's it's sad and it's horrible and it shouldn't. But if if it has to come to the point where we have to go to war, when that's just you know, that's just a, such an acceptable part of it. Um, and I think, you know, those are some of the ways in which we can try to like tease out nuance from people. So I mean, I yeah, I think my approach is one that is about non-harm and non-killing um but it's just about how do we come to these conclusions right i remember i had when i was married i had marriage counseling before i got married and the people who were going to marry us um vocalized very clearly that i was very difficult to work with (laughs) because so often they would be doing things like painting a situation and i'd be like well it depends you know what about yeah, what about this and what about that and what about this and what about that and I'm, I find it very difficult to be black and white because even when you say that society accepts war and it has to happen, I'm like well hang on why why are they going to war mm. I mean even I mean I would even think any kind of offensive war in my sort of Oh, I agree. As, I'd, as I'd a, agree, but I would say I would say you'd be hard pressed to find many countries who would not say that sometimes it's okay to go to war. Uh, and I guess there's a different thing here now. So you're talking about countries versus I was talking about me. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking I wrote it down. I haven't come back to it yet. Maybe we don't have time to. But um, when before we were talking about decisions that we all agree to now, stop light, seatbelt. There seems to be a group of decisions that are implemented by government institutions mm-hmm. or agencies, and you could probably lump war into there. Mm-hmm. It's a government decision. But then there are a group of things that society is talking about that, like maybe you'd say more of a sociological conversations. And, um, I mean, we've basically come to the end, so this will be next time. Um, But it's like I was thinking it's probably easier for a society to come to consensus on something that is implemented, not entirely. I mean, I can go to that anti-smacking law or the cannabis referendum, or but maybe it's easier to come to a conclusion if the if, if you know mummy and daddy government says whereas if we as a community are talking about whether it is what is racism mm. or whether it is what is gender or whether it is you know what is whatever maybe that's more difficult because you're not getting um the lead from above and i mean i hate that idea because i hate being told what to do but you know what i mean it, maybe it's easier to accept those decisions that that are government instituted as opposed to um Society sh- shifting and changing and but, all the way but through. But politics responds to that. You know, I think um, if the whole nation is opposed to a, to a country going to war, it will impact that government's decision to go to war. Um, not always immediately, but I think public mobiliza- mobilization works. And I think that's in dictatorships, we can see why people are so afraid of the public because it actually has a lot of power. Mm. And this notion to think we can't make a difference because no matter who I vote for, it won't make a difference is is the biggest lie we could have ever been told yeah. is that we, that we can't actually self-organize and challenge even our own governments. I mean, that's what I really like in not living in a dictatorship because some people live in dictatorships and you get disappeared very quickly when you say certain things that I, I might say about about governments. I'm like, we shouldn't 
tell people that we don't have a say because we do. And also not every decision that is political is made at the top, top government level. Some of them are yeah. made on city level. Some yeah. of them are made on regional level. But they're all decisions that sometimes involve community consultation because we understand that the community might have a say. Um, and they can be contested. And some of them are harder to contest, especially if they impact minority groups because we just don't have the same numbers. Um, but yeah, you you can stand up and and challenge the state as well, and you can challenge you know structures like the police. And I think the U.S. is showing that very very clearly at the moment, where people are standing up to you know a system of violence that has been acting with yeah what what I yeah I think that what what happens in the U.S. has been happening for a really really long time. It's not exceptional, and it's not just part of Trump's campaign, mm. but people are not accepting it and they're organizing and we immediately describe it as riots and and people are disrupting and causing trouble and I'm like no that's just visible to us when people are stifled and and killed mm. um, then we don't necessarily see that or when they're kept in poverty those are all forms of violence that are less visible and are more socially accepted because you know it's your own fault kind of if you're poor that's the logic i'm like it's not like that's also a form of violence not being able to go to the doctor is a form of violence having to die of things that we can cure very easily is a form of violence but we think if you're out in the street protesting and then there's a tire burning woof, that's the real violence right it also makes me think about i was going to say what do you want to wrap up with but i think that's a pretty cool wrap up you've just given then um it makes me think about back to trump and the medical side of things if he is given and as they're saying on a few news reports at the moment a cocktail of drugs to help him if that's successful wouldn't that just be the most disgusting thing in the world that they for one man although albeit he's an important man in, in the community have found a solution or a cocktail that are going to help him yet two hundred and fifteen thousand other americans haven't been afforded that same privilege i mean if you compare the numbers of people who are dying in the u.s to the to the death in germany which has a high case of infections but fairly low rate of people passing of covid there's no there's no reason why a country like the united states couldn't have those same numbers right because I, it's negligence it's it's creating a system in which people are excluded from basic basic access to health care um, I haven't looked at this in so long. There was a time during lockdown where I would religiously look at this early first thing in the morning and then right before going to bed. I um, did this just the other day because I was talking to an American contributor. About 3%. So 7.5 million cases, 213,000 deaths. Just under 3%. India, like 1.5%. So India, and mind you, I, I would probably question, I said it on the other day, I said I would probably question the numbers coming out of India, but then my uh, American commentator also said, I'm just looking for Germany. Can I say 22. Germany? 22. Um, I also said, yeah, look at that, because that's, that's three, what's that? Nine would be, 29 would be 10%, and it's, oh, well, that's still kind of 3%-ish, isn't it? Give or take? Nine, nine out of 300,000? So it's not that dissimilar uh, per capita-wise than, than... They've uh, had a lot recently. Yeah. Um, and the point that my American contributor make was, um, I don't think all the cases are being reported in no. America either. So, no. so I was like, okay, fair enough then. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary, scary time. Who would have thought, you know, like this is... I always think when we look back at the Spanish flu and you see these photographs to think 
is this what it's going to be like in like 10 years from now? Kids are going to look back at photos and they're like, oh, look at all these people walking around no, with I, the street with masks. I, um, I said to my one of my kids, maybe my 14-year-old probably a couple of weeks ago, when, you know, when you're talking to your grandchildren, assuming that this is not a cyclical thing we're going through now, meaning COVID-20, COVID-21, COVID-22, they'll be like, really, Grandma? You had like a year that you stayed inside? Really? Like how sort of we talk to... You know, people who are older than us, maybe two generations away, like you really kind of like you did bomb shelters and got into mm-hmm. the subways. And it's, it's that that's the level of stuff that we're in right now. And we weren't locked up for a year, if you compare that. No, yeah, I mean, no, not at all. You know, our friends in Denmark, friends that my family lives in Germany, this country didn't have really a lockdown. Like we have been incredibly privileged. Life has been fairly normal for most of us. And we've been able to go out. I, talk to friends and I say I'm I'm at the gym and they always say oh lucky you you can go to the gym and I'm like oh yeah we kind of forget we forget that this is ravaging around us and and the people who feel limited oh my god I can't go on holiday I'm like yeah I mean I also would like to go on holiday but we we're so lucky yeah well, the, the word privilege is interesting as well because when I sometimes think about privilege and I think about how that's used in the context today, it's often about things that we can't control. Mm. White privilege, mm. for example, you know, that mm. sort of thing. But actually, we've worked fucking hard and our government's done really well to afford us some of these freedoms and now it's up to us not to cock it up. Yes. So yes, it is privilege, but I feel like maybe that word has been, not in a bad way, but been co-opted to meaning that we have no control oh, over. Oh yeah, it Whereas, was accidental. I'm like, was, this was an accidentally, you know, yeah. like there was some some really informed decisions yeah. were made. Um, and again, it can any anything can be improved, and anything is open to be, you know, for accountability and critique. Yep. Um, I just don't think we should conflate critique and criticism. Just saying, oh, I don't like it. Um, critique, I think, is in in the spirit of accountability and growth. And then there's sometimes we just critique for if we criticize for the sake of criticism so people are like oh because it's the other party i have to now criticize it and i mean we can actually just acknowledge some good decisions were made some decisions could have been made better yeah i think you for know sure but i think that little that little blip in auckland has given us all the opportunity to kind of go okay even when we were in level one hence i did this yesterday you know i've still got I say I walk around with one in my backpack. Yep, I've got them in my car every time we run out of the supermarket. Boom, boom, boom. You know, get which the I kids. don't mind. What does that say about us? What kind of filthy people were we that we needed to be told to wash our hands regularly because there was a virus? You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, dirty, dirty people. Hey, Muktas, it's been an absolute pleasure. As I've said to you before, anytime you're in town, come and say hey because this conversation went places that we didn't know it was going to go beforehand and. It was a lot of fun. What are you going to say this conversation was about oh if you put God, it up? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Brain I, fart. I, I get educated by intelligent academic from Christchurch. I don't know. We'll figure it out. All right. People can tell me. They're watching it now. and um, Put a name on it. Yeah. Thank you again. It's been a blast. And look, as we always say, anytime. All right, team, that's us, done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. Designed for people looking for a less harmful alternative to smoking, the Stratus is a cost-effective device for anyone looking to step away from old habits. It's a hassle-free, reliable, compact pod kit, and you can find out more about it at vaporium.nz. Dr. Azamandi is amazing, and I want to do this with her every single week. 
because there's such interesting stuff that comes out of our conversations. Hope you enjoyed that as well. Hey, coming up in the next week, um, there's a lot of things kind of uh, been agreed to and set up, but we don't quite have timetabled for yet. So uh, Marama Davidson, co-leader of the Greens, is due to come up this week, as is a couple of academics talking about the euthanasia referendum and also a team out of Namibia whose job it is to rescue seals from... Uh, being caught up in like fishing twine and stuff it's fascinating I'm sure if you go and have a look for Namibia seals on YouTube you like me will get stuck in that rabbit hole where basically you spend days if not weeks watching these amazing people scream down the beach in their utes jump out of their moving utes run into the middle of hundreds of seals to catch one who has got cutting into their skin, into their neck, fishing line from recreational fishermen, from you know uh, deep sea trawlers, nets caught around their heads. Basically the kind of thing that if these guys weren't involved, they would die. Because eventually, especially when it gets caught on the pups, they grow, the thing constricts, they can't feed, or it cuts off the oxygen and they die. Um, I, I just basically watch them on YouTube. I, I love watching them. I think what they're doing is amazing. They're like superheroes to me. And um, I wanted to talk to them. And when you do this kind of thing and you do it for yourself and you do it out of your house, uh, we can do that. And so I'm so very excited that they've agreed to come and have a chat with us. Uh, it was uh, booked in for Wednesday of this week, but uh, depending on where you hear this and what we finally organise, we'll see what exactly happens there, but they're coming up as well. Now, the thing about this is I'm trying to get out um, very in a long-winded way is come like us on Facebook. Go to Facebook and look up D-O-C-N-Z, just the initials D-O-C-N-Z, standing for, of course, Department of Conversation in New Zealand, D-O-C-N-Z. Like that page, and when you do, sometimes we get notifications only 24 hours out that someone's coming on, but as soon as we get identified and notified and organised, we put an event up on that page. So like the Facebook page, it's a really good way for you to find out whether we've got you know, a day's notice, a week's notice, or a month's notice that they may could be coming on board to have a chat with us about um, yeah their, their, their subject of interest for them. Uh, you can also, of course, contact us through that page, and you can go to our, our website as well, doc.nz, uh, to find us. Hey, guys, it's been a great one. Thanks again for joining us. Really look forward to catching up with you next time. I do genuinely appreciate you giving us some of your time to listen to some of these conversations. Um, stay safe, wash your hands, be nice to one another, and until we see you next time, hooroo, my friends. Hooroo.